Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. On this week's episode, we're talking about philanthropy and more specifically the role philanthropies can play in making cities more equitable, where people have a real say in how dollars flow into their communities. Our guest is Rip Rapson, president of the Kresge Foundation, and we'll get to Rip in a moment, but first, I wanted to offer up some background. When we say philanthropy, what do we really mean? Well, the term kind of has two meanings. The first definition comes directly from the Greek root, Philanthropia. It means loving of human beings, and that translates that philanthropy is about the desire to promote the welfare of others. The other definition finds that idea of benevolence in a more organized form, like a charity or a foundation that aims to donate private resources towards the public good. In fact, you can think of philanthropies a little like boats. Just as all boats are meant to float, all philanthropies are structures to give away dollars to do good things. But just like you have tiny kayaks and giant cruise ships, philanthropies come in very different shapes and sizes. You've probably heard of some of the bigger legacy foundations. You know, the Fords, Rockefellers, and MacArthur Foundations. And you might have heard of some of the newer ones as well. With plans to give away $60 billion, Bill and Melinda Gates have now become the most generous philanthropists in the world. At just 33 years old, Priscilla Chan leads CZI, or the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and what may just turn out to be the biggest change agent in Silicon Valley. All of these foundations take on different types of issues, from bettering American educational outcomes to improving global health. The resources that they put out are significant, and their ability to marshal attention and bring people together to focus on certain issues or places may be even more important. All in all, philanthropy and foundations play an increasingly central role in the development of modern policy and American civic life. So with that backdrop in mind, here's Rip Rapson, the president and CEO of the Kresge Foundation. Kresge is one of the biggest foundations in the country with an endowment of over $3.5 billion. And they give away up to $150 million every year with a focus on expanding opportunities in America's cities. We started our conversation by talking about how RIP helped Kresge transition from an old-school checkbook philanthropy focused more on capital investments to one deeply invested in complex social change at the local level. When he became president at Kresge 12 years ago, Rip looked to draw lessons from the work of other big foundations, and he had four big takeaways. One, one of the values of private philanthropy was that it actually could take a longer view. It could work on issues over time and sort of chip away at these intractable problems in hopes that something might improve. Second, that the best private philanthropy took risks, and those were often risks that were commensurate with the magnitude of the challenge. It could be a small risk on a particular organization or a large risk on a, on a big set of problems. Third, I suggested that many philanthropies were increasingly using multiple tools, not 
just within the sort of the grant spectrum of you know grants for research or for convening or for capacity building, but also loans and equity investments and things that have come to be more standard now, but 10, 12 years ago were still a little bit unusual. And then finally, in my view, private philanthropy had this enormous privilege to be able to work on issues involving people or ideas that had been marginalized. Rip says that these lessons started to provide a common starting point for the work of the foundation. We began working along those four principles and seeing what we could construct. And, and we began just by trying to become a normal foundation. We, we created teams in the six areas in which Kresge had traditionally given its capital, human services, the environment, arts, and others. But there was still work to be done. They had to ask themselves a really important question. What binds all of their work in these different areas together? And it's such a simple question. It's one of those classic sort of disarming questions where we fudged all around for the better part of a year. But at the end of the day, what became clear was that the real thread was that we were trying to work on opportunity structures in urban America. And that increasingly, all of our programs were taking aim at, at folks who um, had been denied sort of the traditional ladders of opportunity in, in America. And that part of our challenge had been articulated very explicitly in each of the programs is trying to deconstruct some of the barriers to opportunity and, and putting in their place more powerful opportunity structures. And in order to build some of these opportunity structures, Rip believes that foundations can't just stand on the sidelines. I am increasingly convinced that predominant change in philanthropy over the last decade has been the recognition that it has to do two things. One, it has to sort of lean into these really intractable challenges in a way that sort of implicates complex, long-term, structural, systemic issues. And second, that governance in the cities of America is essentially a distributive act, that drawing in all of the sectors and almost reverse engineering a problem, sort of articulating a problem as a community and then figuring out which sectors have which tools in what doses and in what sequence and at what pace becomes the sort of the essence to problem solving. And Kresge has spent a lot of time thinking about these structures in the context of American cities. Under Rip's direction, they started out making deeper investments in a city that's basically in their backyard. Where we began our urban work was largely in Detroit. And so for the first many years I was there, there was so much emphasis placed on how can the city of Detroit become more stable and more anchoring of the, the regional prosperity. So it was sort of an inside-out game. In the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, Detroit actually declared bankruptcy, and Kresge had the chance to take on a more central role. Philanthropy was sort of called to the table in a way that I think it didn't expect. And a lot of, I think a lot of our colleagues felt extremely reluctant to sort of enter the fray. Adlai Stevenson once said, it's hard to lead a cavalry charge if you think you look funny on a horse. Well, philanthropy thought it looked really funny on a horse. <laughs> and so because Kresge was the largest national philanthropy and because we had such deep roots in the city and because we had already begun working across these different domains of human services and health and environment, we thought that we really needed to try to figure out how to use our resources and help our colleagues you know, get on the same page and pull in the same direction. The experience in Detroit pushed Kresge to think about the kinds of roles foundations could play in a city context. 
One is that philanthropy had served as a table setter. There were just a lot of conversations that were very difficult for the public sector to take on. Second, philanthropy could invest in community capacity. At first, it was municipal capacity. They just didn't have the bodies to to do the kind of complex retooling they needed. Third, philanthropy could take risks. I mean, there were transactions that were just not market ready. And whether it was uh, investing in a whole food store to try to open up the fresh food access for the city. Fourth, philanthropy could serve as a guarantor of value, which is an, an odd phrase, but it was the idea that we could make investments in public infrastructure that would signal to the markets that it was safe to invest. Fifth, we could serve as a seller, particularly in the sort of the pre-bankruptcy time when everyone from the White House to the Ford Foundation to my own trustees were saying, why are we investing in Detroit? This just seems like such a no-win proposition. You could actually articulate the case. You could lay out the modules. You could try to attract talent. You could try to attract ideas. You could try to attract philanthropic dollars into the community in a way that nobody else could. And finally, philanthropy could be a steward of really fragile ecologies, things that will always need philanthropic charitable support, human services, the arts, food access through something like the Eastern market. In recent years, Kresge has taken another step towards their evolution in thinking about social change by honing in on neighborhoods as a focal point for their attention. The complexity of pivoting the kinds of tools and approaches we've used over the last decade into the neighborhoods is almost impossible to overstate. The infrastructure is more fragile. The problems are much deeper rooted. You're not dealing with how to renovate a commercial corridor. You're dealing with how to create opportunity for people to get into job pathways or to have agency in the direction of their neighborhood's redevelopment. I mean, unbelievably complicated. But in this type of pivot to neighborhoods, Rip emphasized just how important it is to be sensitive to local context if you want to make a difference. I think one of the things that we're deeply sensitive to to, and I think other national foundations need to pay attention to, is the extent to which you need some kind of ground wire into community context. And none of us is smart enough to figure that out from a distance. You've got to have partners on the ground who can help translate, can help guide, can help structure, and can throw up flags when, when you're off base. And I think increasingly that is our our methodological bias in places uh, other than Detroit is, can we find partners on the ground who would love to have our help in one way or another, whether ideas or people or money or time, um, but on their own terms, not on, not on ours. Uh, one of the ways we've done that is to hook up with Urban and with Brookings and with Living Cities and with the Aspen Institute to try to do a version of that, to, to say in Fresno, Tell us what you're working on that seems most elusive and most difficult and that your own resources are, are stumbling with. And then could we together figure out ways in which these national res- uh, research, policy, technical assistance, funding or organizations might be helpful to you? The answer may be no. It may be that the tools we have in our toolbox aren't particularly helpful, but the answer may also be yes. Now, when Kresge thinks about cities and neighborhoods, it thinks about the twin concepts of inclusive growth and shared prosperity. Rip talked about what that means for the foundation. Inclusive recovery, I think, is both rooted in equitable economic opportunity and racial equity. 
And I think as a result, it's important to, to keep top of mind because as we've gone around the country, there, there seem to be two impulses that underlie this universal interest in trying to figure out how to grow it inclusively, whether that's a city, a county, or a region. And people almost always in the past have gravitated to the economic part of that equation, that if we can create a more diversified job base, if we can do better job training, if we can figure out ways to enhance mobility literally from center to to edge, that that will will be a kind of a model of economic development that is both necessary and sufficient. And I think it's necessary, but I don't think it's sufficient. And I think what urban have done so effectively is to call attention to the need to look at the underlying structural impediments to that that land most heavily on race. And Rip talked about some of the core elements of those approaches. And so, yes, it is transit. Yes, it is housing. Yes, it is job opportunity. Yes, it is diversification. But when you take it apart and put it back together with a a heavy weight toward racial inequity, it becomes a very different kind of question. And as a result, I think one of the things that we're seeing in communities that are taking aim at inclusive growth is a very different process it's always about strategy. It's always about job training and all the things I just mentioned. But it's also about whether communities of color have agency. Are we going to grow in a way that is sort of done for us and to us? Or is it going to be done in a way in which we have, have the ability to help structure, to help fully participate in, and ultimately to, to um, feel good about and feel ownership of? That's, I think, the, 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 the sea change. Towards the end of our conversation, I asked Rip to reflect back on his 12 years at Kresge. He talked about some of the shifts that he's seen in foundations and how they engage now. The changes uh, that I've seen over the last 15 or 20 years that I've been in philanthropy are profound. I mean, it's a different creature. On one level, it's obvious you've got the rise of community foundations who are getting bigger and more sophisticated and more socially tuned. You have the emergence of new wealth uh, that, you know, that we all know too well. But I also think that whether it's a legacy foundation, a family foundation, or a community foundation, there is an embrace of the proposition that philanthropy has to matter to the burning platforms of the age. And I ironically, I don't think that was actually the case 15 years ago. I don't mean to be mean-spirited or, or overly simplistic, but I think that the charitable impulses that controlled philanthropy 20 years ago were deeply admirable, but they were deeply responsive. I mean, it was sort of what was presented to you is what you react to. And it's these ways of working. It's taking this long-term view and taking risk and using all your tools and focusing on the folks in greatest need where those structural impediments are the greatest. I think those become sort of the touchstones for uh, effective philanthropy. And Rip believes that the new generation of philanthropists can learn from the work and lessons from the legacy generation. I would hate to see sort of the new generation of philanthropy, whether it's the Balmers or the Chan Zuckerbergs or, um, or you know, smaller foundations, make the mistake of thinking that community change is easy. 
This is not a technocratic exercise. It's not a once and done exercise. It's not a, we are really smart and we'll figure out an innovative way to use data to solve this problem exercise. I think what I hope legacy philanthropy can help new philanthropy come to sooner rather than later is how important context is. Context geographically and context in terms of discipline. That There are just endless ways in which change is complicated. And I think the the large technology-driven philanthropies that I've dealt with get this, but uh, I think they are still working a little bit with the sort of classic sort of entrepreneurial attitude that, you know, it can't be that hard. We've done it. We've done it in our, in our domain. We can do it in, in another domain. His advice is to not just sidestep this complexity, but to roll up their sleeves and embrace it. I have a deep place-based bias, I have to admit. And, and I think that there, there is just unbelievable potential to take on big national challenges of all shapes and sizes. But when it really hits the ground, it goes back to your very first question of working in a city or, or a county or a region, but working in a city where all of these systems are colliding and real people are kind of working every day to, to, to solve issues and you're just one more piece of that equation, that's really subtle, nuanced work. And I'm hoping that we can enlist sort of new philanthropy in that work rather than having them sort of float and hover at 40,000 feet. And ultimately, Rip sees the promise of these partnerships to make lasting change. I think the fact that uh, no single sector thinks it needs to drive this is good news indeed, and very different from, again, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when in some cases it was all about the private sector, all about the public sector. And they can't the public sector can't really do anything without philanthropy, and we can't really do anything without the private investment. I mean, it's all a fabric, right? And I think that is something that has sort of snuck up on us and is really powerful and really hopeful. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here's three things you need to know. One, philanthropies are in a unique position to help revitalize America's cities by acting as a catalyst for investment bringing citizens, government, and business leaders together and providing investment that's seen as too risky for the private sector. Two, as they do this work, philanthropy can play a lot of different roles. Yes, they can engage in traditional grant making, but they can also help build community capacity, steward difficult conversations, and participate in innovative investments to advance goals. And three, as foundations work in America's cities, they should ensure they're doing so in a way that drives shared prosperity and equitable development. To do so, they can engage local communities and organizations and ensure investment is done with them and not to them. So that's our show. Thanks so much to Rip Rapson for a great conversation. We absolutely loved having him in the house. For more about the Shared Prosperity Project that Rip mentioned and other topics discussed here, check out our podcast page at urban.org slash critical value. If you like what you're hearing here on Critical Value, take a moment to give us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast application. I promise it takes just like half a second. And if you have feedback, write a review and let us know what you think. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, what you like, and maybe what you don't like or what you'd want to hear more of. Every rating and every review makes it easier for others to find us. So thanks so much for your help. 
And if you're enjoying these episodes, or even if you're not really enjoying but listening out of some bizarre sense of duty, please hit subscribe to get all future episodes delivered for free to your podcast player. Big thank you to the Critical Value crew, producers Katie Smith, Kate Villarreal, and Dave Connell for all your help, and our sound editor extraordinaire, Riley Byrne, from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. <laughs>